Israeli democracy in danger? As judicial reform is discussed in the Knesset's halls, we at the Times of Israel are taking a journey probing into what are the country's current checks and balances and what could be the consequences of potential new legislation. Are we headed for a tyranny of the majority or rather implementing much needed legislation? Join us as we explore these issues with top Israeli legal experts in this Limited Times of Israel podcast series, Israel's Judiciary, Reform or Ruin? Hello, everyone. Welcome to this fifth episode, which is drawn from a Times of Israel live-streamed event on the topic of judicial reform that took place on December 15th at the Israel Democracy Institute in Jerusalem. In this episode, attorney Yonatan Green argues that the override clause is not all bad. He refutes previous speaker's statements and asserts that the court has assumed the power of judicial review without any legal authorization. Times of Israel editor David Horvitz introduces Yonatan and asks some follow-up questions. Future episodes will include remarks from other speakers about specific cases of using a tactic of strategic litigation to broaden human rights. And finally, for this session, he's waited very patiently for a long time, I'd like to introduce Jonathan Green, who, among other things, I think will speak about why the override clause isn't all bad. Jonathan Green is executive director of the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. He's a licensed attorney in Israel and in the state of New York and obtained his degree in law and communications from the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. Jonathan Green, the floor is yours. Thank you. Thank you very much, David, and thank you to the Times of Israel and the IDI for hosting us and to my uh, fellow co-panelists. Cool I'm going to apologize to the audience. I have a cough that I'm fighting off, so I might be occasionally uh, interrupted. Um, much has been said. Obviously, I do take issue with some of the uh, comments made, and sadly, I don't think that we can respond uh, to everything. I will resist the, temp the temptation. Um, however, I hope that my remarks will at least uh, indirectly address some of the points uh, that we've made. So I have two main points to make, but I'm actually going to kick off with a quote, which I think uh, Tamar led into very nicely with her closing remark when she spoke about rights uh, uh, essentially limiting all of government, limiting uh, law. So this is a quote from British Supreme Court Justice, uh, uh, Lord Jonathan Sumption, uh, in a speech in 2019 that he gave towards retirement. And he was talking about human rights as law. And he says, human rights as law is essentially a system of law-based decision-making which would entrench a broad range of liberal principles as the constitutional basis of the state. Democratic choice would be impotent to remove or limit them without the authority of courts of law. Sounds familiar. I continued the quote. The essential objection to this is that, sorry, uh, sorry, the essential objection is that this is conceptually no different from the claim of communism, fascism, monarchism, Catholicism, Islamism, and all other great isms that have historically claimed the monopoly of legitimate political discourse on the ground that its advocates considered themselves to be obviously right. I know that's a mouthful. Uh, and again, again, this is a, a recent British Supreme Court justice saying this. And I finished the quote with his, with his closing uh, paragraph here. But other models are possible. One can believe in rights without wanting to remove them from the democratic arena by placing them under the exclusive jurisdiction of a priestly caste of judges. One can believe that one's fellow citizens ought to choose liberal values without wanting to impose them. 
Now, I, uh, we might relate back to this quote, but I think that sort of sets the tone. So like I said, I have two primary points I'd like to make. My first point, I hope I kind of strike a balance between the specific question. I will focus on the actual uh, override clause, but I hope also uh, it will enable us to talk about some of the, uh, the wider questions. The actual question under consideration here with the override clause is who gets final say? This is not about judicial review. It's about who gets to insist. By, by definition, the override clause envisions a certain scenario, right? It's, it involves disagreement between the judiciary and the legislature about the validity about a particular law, right? The Knesset passes a law, the judiciary strikes it down for unconstitutionality, whatever it is, and then the Knesset says, you know, we want to re-legislate it, we want to insist. So essentially, they are at an impasse. And then the question becomes, who gets to impose their will? Who has final decision-making authority? Who has the tiebreaker? Who has final word on policy and rulemaking powers? Is it legislative supremacy or judicial supremacy? Now, this might, may, might, might sound uh, simplistic, but it really is that simple. Now, I want to agree with Yaniv that really uh, judicial, uh, sorry, legislative override is kind of like a tame term. We're really talking about judicial supremacy or legislative supremacy. Now, to answer that question, I think it's an important question. It's a question that really um, uh, basically almost any uh, democracy with, uh, uh, with review of legislation deals with. To answer that question, we have to take in, into consideration, and this is my main point, the disputed, contested, contested, and highly dubious nature of Israel's so-called constitution, which ostensibly serves as the basis for judicial review. In the particular context of the Israeli pseudo-constitution, even if we accept the reality of judicial review, it is indefensible, unthinkable, and untenable that anyone but the Knesset has a valid claim for final say. And in this context, I think this also relates to the various suggestions of, you know, let's, we can adopt wholesale other systems of government, or, you know, we should have all these sort of ideal systems. I, I, I totally agree, and, you know, I'll sort of join my fellow, some of my fellow panelists. I'm in favor of a full constitution. I'm in favor of hard, const, uh, you know, uh, judicial review legislation where court can strike down laws. But we're not there. We are now in a situation, which I will in a moment elaborate on, where Israel has a pseudo-constitution, where Israel has, uh, the court has the ability of judicial review of legislation with absolutely none, absolutely none of the traditional, typical uh, uh, mechanisms which balance that kind of power or that enable or even legitimate that kind of power. So to delve a little bit deeper into this, we've heard some of the constitutional history, and I won't go too much into that, but I do want to boil it down to some basic elements. Since Israel's founding and up until 1995, until the constitutional revolution, the prevailing rule in Israel was one of legislative supremacy or parliamentary sovereignty, with, the, with some minor exceptions. Among other things, this meant that the court could not, down, uh, could not uh, strike down legislation. And this was not unusual. Israel had no codified constitution. That is the default rule in a representative democracy, right? In the absence of an explicit, deliberate, conscious, formal choice to make it otherwise by the electorate, the legislature has the final say. So we fast forward to 1995, and again, we're not going into the whole history. But the constitutional revolution happens in the famous Bank Hamizrahi case. I'm surprised that it, I think it hasn't even come up once so far. Uh, uh, but so I, I won't go into it. But essentially, that is the moment that from thence forward, the court has accorded to itself the power of uh, uh, judicial review of legislation. And that is the moment that the court uh, heralded or created, depends who you ask, the Israeli constitution. Problem is, after we get around all the sophisticated theories and after we've been inundated by so much con convoluted history and elaborate constitutional philosophy and the basic laws and the Harari compromise and yada yada, it's worth restating the simple, inescapable fact. Israel still does not have a constitution, not in any common or accepted sense of the term. And no amount of pretending and legal or logical acrobatics can change this basic reality. The Israeli people have never deliberated upon or enacted a unified constitutional document in a way that represents 
a broad public consensus to limit their own democratic authority. Now, before I get stoned here in the room, before anybody gets up in arms, I'm not here to rehash the ongoing argument about the constitutional revolution or the court's basis for judicial review. My point is not to persuade you, dear audience, uh, that the court doesn't have de jure authority of judicial review, though I assure you it does not. The point is uh, that this authority from the outset is and always has been at best questionable. And in fact, it has been deeply and hotly contested, strongly disputed, and is based on dubious and shaky grounds indeed. In, in uh, Professor Daniel Friedman's words, this is a, a former minister of justice, Dean Telvi Law School, re recipient of uh, the Israel Prize for Law. He says the Constitutional Revolution stands on chicken's legs. I thought you would complete my, sorry, uh, on chicken's legs. So just to be clear, the existence of an Israeli constitution is not only disputed by a large part of the electorate. Uh, this, is a, this is an anecdote. I recently gave a lecture to a bunch of people. It was a, a bunch of adults, well-rounded, educated individuals. And as I started talking, one of them had to cut me off and say, hang on, hang on, but what's a constitution? And then, of course, it occurs to me, of course he wouldn't know what a constitution is. Nobody in Israel knows what a constitution is because we don't have one. Sorry, continuing. It's not only disputed by a large part of the electorate. Uh, uh, rather, it is also disputed by many leading legal scholars and figures then as it is, as it is now. Consider, and I'm just going to throw off a few examples here, consider the scathing minority opinion in the Bank Mizrahi case by Justice Michel Chesin, where he calls the Constitution wishful thinking. Renowned Professor Ruth Gabizon called it a self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, uh, consider Chief Justice Moshe Landau, former Chief Justice Moshe Landau, one of Israel's greatest judges to ever sit in the Supreme Court, who immediately after the Mizrahi case published a blistering attack on that ruling and on the claim that Israel had a constitution in an essay titled A Constitution by Judicial Decree. Consider Judge Richard Posner. This is kind of an outside view. This is one of the greatest legal minds of the 20th century. Uh, this is just a, a useful quote from him, I think. Only in Israel do judges confer the power of abstract review on themselves without the benefit of a constitutional or legislative provision. One is reminded, this is still Posner, one is reminded of Napoleon's taking the crown out of the Pope's hands and putting it on his own head. This is not a compliment, if you are wondering. Judge Posner is simply stating the obvious. A claim to judicial review of legislation when not based on an actual constitution is highly problematic, and that's to put it lightly. And perhaps most illustrating of all, and I'll, I'll close my uh, examples here at this point with this, the famous Hamizrahi ruling, which heralded the constitutional revolution and created judicial review in Israel, is actually mainly preoccupied with whether Israel has any constitution at all. Meaning most of the arguments laid out in all of its 600 pages in that ruling are to convince the reader that Israel has a constitution to begin with. Now, whenever I think of this, I'm reminded of Margaret Thatcher's famous quote, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. And this is not a statement on gender identity. Um, but to paraphrase Thatcher on that, if you have to write 600 pages explaining that you have a constitution propped up by elaborate constitutional theories, while judges and leading legal scholars vehemently dispute your claim, you probably don't have a constitution. And we've had a few comparative examples here, but uh, which countries have what? And Israel is the only country, and et cetera, et cetera. Israel is certainly the only country in the world with judicial review of primary legislation without anything approaching a standard accepted, accepted constitution in the way that we usually think about that term and that idea. But again, the point is not to persuade you guys that Israel has no constitution, even though it might not seem that way. Rather, it's to show you that its existence and validity are disputed and always have been, and that the power of judicial review rests on slim grounds. And this brings me back to the original question. Who has final say? Who gets to insist? 
So if I understand, you know, I correctly understood, I think, the argument against the override clause here, the argument essentially for judicial supremacy seems to mean the Knesset and electorate have no recourse. Tough luck, right? The people are powerless to make certain rules uh, uh, if the judges disagree with them. It is beyond their reach. Now, this might have been remotely comprehensible if there was a constitutional framework to support this kind of judicial override of the political process. However, considering the current constitutional arrangements in Israel, in the absence of any publicly accepted constitution, and the deeply disputed nature of the Israeli so-called constitution, it is, like I said, unthinkable, unjustifiable, and untenable that the Knesset shouldn't have final say authority. Every alternative, including uh, 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 one where 15 unelected judges can insist on their own judicial override without the benefit of a real constitution, is patently undemocratic and borderline tyrannical. Now, to wrap up this point, I do have one more point. I hope uh, I'm okay for time. I will just wrap up this point with with this sort of, uh, you know, I think uh, Tamar rightly said, you know, the uh, in theory, at least, the Knesset can just cancel the the basic law for human dignity and liberty. And this maybe sort of shows some level of acceptance. I'm not going to go into the argument. But I will say that I think that the sort of alarmism, the apocalyptic tone about the override clause doesn't really serve anybody because it really is one of the most benign options on the table. Other measures include, and really should include, I mean, in my opinion, I wouldn't even be sad if some of these happened, but they include, you know, the the Knesset has the authority to put a line in the basic law of the judiciary and say, courts have no authority to strike down legislation. Same as, and you've mentioned the Netherlands, the Netherlands have almost the exact same uh, uh, rule in their constitution. Now, I'm I'm not necessarily in favor of that, but I'm saying, and of course, also the Knesset can uh, can just cancel the basic law of of, uh, human dignity and liberty. So I'm saying of all the options, this is such a benign option that to me, it seems strange uh, uh, to sort of die on that particular hill. Um, But there's much more to say about that, but I'll wrap up on that point. My second point, which will be shorter, don't worry. And I think this also ties into a lot of the things that have been discussed here. So much of the discussion surrounding judicial review and objecting to the override clause is often phrased in terms of rights. The usually commonly heard arguments is that the court can protect the rights of individuals and minorities by striking down laws that violate them, right? And this is true. And in the same vein, we're told that the override clause gives the Knesset the unlimited ability to violate rights with impunity. Now, there's a great deal to say about this. I think the argument is wrong in principle, uh, but I won't go down that, that route. And I'd like to focus on why it's irrelevant in practice. The vast majority of all laws struck down, struck down by the Supreme Court were matters of pure policy. They regard questions. Are we okay? We're okay for time? Okay, sorry. Okay. They regard questions of public preference for competing values, distribution of resources, prioritization of different goals and means, all et cetera, et cetera. This is all squarely within the prerogative of democratic decision making. So what I'm saying is to you, the audience, don't buy into the constant and misleading invocation of rights. It's just policy masquerading as rights, with some very limited exceptions. That is, of course, and I'm not saying anything new here, that is the inherent danger of judicial enforcement of rights. Because almost any government policy and any law can be formulated as a rights issue. It means that courts can simply impose policy in the guise of enforcing rights. But like I said, my argument is not theoretical, it is practical. So let's look at a bunch of examples. And I'm going to run through these. We're not going to have time to to go into too much detail, but just I'm going to run through a few examples of legislation that was struck down by the court. There was a law on eligibility criteria for some welfare benefits, wherein uh, ownership of a car became a barrier to receiving a certain benefit. The court struck it down by saying the right to dignity includes a right to a minimum of dignified living. Now, whether you agree or not doesn't matter. This is pure 
straightforward welfare policy and economic policy. This, this has nothing to do with rights. Forget the fact that it has nothing to do with the interpretation of the word dignity. You know, obviously there's an equally valid argument that dignity also means not getting handouts from the government, etc. But in one case or the other, one way or the other, this is not a legal question for courts to decide. Are we really supposed to pretend that ownership of a vehicle as part of, as a condition for welfare eligibility, or non-ownership of a vehicle as part of a condition for welfare eligibility is a sacred and fundamental right placed outside the discretion of the public and the legislature. I move on. There was a law on prisons, on operating a private operation of prisons by private licensed organizations. The court struck that down too, because dignity requires that prisoners be administered, yeah, prisoners be administered directly by the state, by the government. Now, if I had a facepalm emoji to put on the screen, I would, because if any of you have ever dealt with Israeli bureaucracy, uh, I think you'll find very little dignity in the indifferent, careless, and unaccountable state bureaucracy that we often find ourselves uh, up against, but that is Beside the point, many countries in the world that respect human dignity have privately operated prisons. This is squarely within the prerogative of a democratic society to decide, and nothing in the right to dignity can dictate that particular outcome that the court reached or uh, prescribe, prescribe private prisons. And in this context, and also in the context of the next thing I'll say, this also ties into what Tamar was saying about politicians wanting to evade the law, politicians wanting to act outside the bounds of law, etc. We're talking about legislation. Uh, 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 and I think this applies to all these things. None of these are law. None of these are legal questions. They are neither questions of rights, nor are they questions of law. They are questions of policy formation, of preferences, of values. None, uh, uh, these are, none of these are questions that judges actually have better answers than anybody else. This always reminds me of Scalia's, uh, Justice Anton, Antonin Scalia saying in one of his court cases where he says, on issues such as these, there is no difference, and I'm paraphrasing, there's no difference between nine Supreme Court judges and nine people selected at random from the Kansas City phone book. And this is absolutely true. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap up in just one moment. Just one more example to sort of more on the contentious side. I know I gave some examples of laws that were struck down, uh, uh, which are sort of, they seem kind of technical or sort of benign or minor far worse than that and far more egregious. The Supreme Court has struck down laws that relate to issues and decisions at the heart of Israeli society, within the core of Israeli political and social debate. These reflect deep, fundamental disagreement in society, and sometimes they even reflect historic compromises on these topics. There's nothing legal about these questions, and they have nothing to do with protecting rights. Perhaps the greatest example is that of the military draft ex exemption for ultra-Orthodox men. This is uh, the Knesset in multiple consecutive laws, reached a historical political compromise on one of the most contentious and disputed issues in Israeli society. And of course, let this be known, I served in the military, I continue to serve in the military uh, often and much more often than, than my wife uh, 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 likes, and I'm constantly urged to turn, to turn them down. Uh, uh, nonetheless, this is a benefit that was conferred on a minority. This is, these are pure questions of military, economic, uh, and social policy. Yet the court struck down these laws, not just one law, but consecutive laws where the Knesset is trying to enact these uh, compromises. And this is, of course, because I'm not even getting into this, because, because according to the court's reasoning, these laws violated a vague right to equality. Now, right to equality is not even mentioned in the basic laws, right? Uh, Tamar was talking about laws enshrined in the basic laws. It's not even there. Rather, the court deduced this from the right to dignity. And never mind that the right from, to equality, as we all know, was deliberately removed from the draft of the basic law. The only reason the basic law was ever passed was because the right to equality was removed because the ultra-Orthodox ultra were concerned that it would be used against them. Oh, well, the court isn't particularly interested in that uh, and was uh, uh, happy to ignore that and read the right to equality into the right to dig dignity. Bottom line, this is bald policymaking, pure judicial override of the democratic process. And I think that framing it 
as the court protecting anyone's right is, to put it lightly, unpersuasive. There are more examples, but I'm going to stop with the examples now. I'm going to I'm going to wrap up with one sort of uh, sort of in sum. Yes. So my point is not to convince you that any of, these, any of these laws or any of these outcomes are good or just or bad or moral. Rather, merely that you understand that none of them are about rights. And in all these cases, the court grossly interfered with policymaking laws, laws that reflect the preferences of the public through the mechanism of democratically elected representatives. Keep this in mind for the next session, when you will surely hear about rights protected by the court or endangered by the override clause. And think twice about whether this is really about rights or just about imposing policy and rejecting the results of the democratic process. There's, uh, I'm going to skip a quote by assumption, but truly in sum, I am in favor of respecting basic rights, including their judicial enforcement. I'm in favor of a restrained and balanced legislature, but I'm not in favor of unelected officials wielding arbitrary power to impose policy against the will of the electorate. I am against judicial supremacy, not judicial override, judicial supremacy, without the minimal basis of constitutional legitimacy. And I'm against so-called rights being used as a tool for rejecting the results of democracy. For these reasons and others, the objections, uh, the objections to the override clause are misplaced and misguided, in my opinion. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jonsson. Let me just try and pin you down um, exactly where you would stand on the issue of the override clause, given, you know, you said some pretty definitive things there. Unthinkable that the Knesset should not have the final say, for example, right? And, of course, the Knesset could easily uh, simply legislate that the courts have no authority to strike down legislation. Uh, among the con concerns here is that when you speak about the Knesset, in essence, you're really speaking about the majority coalition when you have a like-minded co uh, 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 co coalition, right? In many uh, democracies, you have, you know, three key hierarchies. You have a legislature, you have an executive, and you have a judiciary. In Israel, the Knesset is basically powerless in the face of any like-minded coalition. So it's not really the Knesset that you're saying needs to have the last word. Given the nature of the override clause that's apparently being considered, it's a narrow majority, a like-minded narrow majority. So really what I'm trying to ask you is, is it, are you defending uh, um, the override clause in a more general sense with perhaps a wide wider support in Parliament, or are you content uh, to give essentially all power, final say, to, uh, to a Knesset with a like-minded, narrow majority, as is apparently being proposed? So I'll clarify a few things. First of all, when I said that it's unthinkable or untenable or whatever, I said that that is under the current circumstances, meaning this is not a theoretical argument. Like I said, in theory, I'm in favor of a full-blown constitution with legislative uh, review of, uh, sorry, a judicial re review of legislation, etc. But under the current circumstances, and I want to spill out for a moment what, what that means, uh, and this also ties into some of the comments that were made, ideally, of course, constitutional arrangements should be holistic. They should be integrative. They should take into account a range of different considerations and balances and institutional uh, parties and all these different actors pushing up against each other, uh, etc. That is what constitutional arrangements should look like. We had such a constitutional arrangement, almost, it definitely needed a lot of improvement, uh, before the constitutional, constitutional revolution. What happened is that 40 years ago, that was upended. The court uh, adopted for itself the power of uh, judicial override of legislation. That's the real override clause. That's the real override clause 40 years ago. And the reason I'm saying... Skip forward to now. Okay, no, no, no. But the reason I'm saying it's untenable is that now we're in this situation, which we've been in for 40 years, we really should be changed the next day. But now we're in this situation where one way or another you have judicial supremacy. That's definitely worse than legislative supremacy from a democratic even perspective. From the, even from the narrowest of margins. Yes, now I'll say something about the narrow, narrowest final of margins. Sentence, yes. we're, we're going to wrap we're, up. We're wrapping up. It to have been fair to everybody. Absolutely, absolutely. So, okay. so final sentence. Thanks, John. First of all, and this is a very general point, you cannot 
nullify the risks of democracy by using tyrannical tools and despotic tools. So yes, of course there are inherent risks in uh, uh, having majorities uh, rule. And, 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 and no, I do not think, ideally, that a slim majority of the Knesset should be able to infringe upon rights. Absolutely not. But as things stand today, right now, as they stand today, right now, it is unthinkable in the current state of affairs that the, that the uh, institution that has final say is uh, the court and not the Knesset. And of course, realistically, I'm also fairly unconcerned that the Knesset is going to throw all the uh, redheads into the ocean or whatever it is. And if they do decide that, it is not the court that's going to stop them. And like uh, uh, Tamar said, a court has never brought down a democracy. Well, a court has never stopped the downfall of a democracy, and that's not going to solve that problem anyway. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this piece of a discussion hosted by the Times of Israel delving into all sides of the looming High Court Override Clause proposal. A thanks to producer Gilad Brownstein and to TOI's own Mick Weinstein. Shalom. Shalom.